Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslin, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Views expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of the Library of Congress, the NEH, or Kentucky Humanities Board and Staff. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 52 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today's guest on our final episode of Think Humanities is poet, author, and scholar Libby Falk Jones of Berea, Kentucky. After my conversation with Libby, I'll have some words of appreciation for those who made Think Humanities possible and some final thoughts. If you happen to Google Libby Falk Jones and run across LibbyFalkJones.com, you'll find that she is a lifelong writer of poems, stories, and essays, and uh, quite an extensive biography on her website. It's um, fascinating to read about all of her accomplishments, and we won't uh, read all of those because we'll talk to Libby today about those uh, many accomplishments. A writer of poems and stories and essays. As I said, she's authored and co-authored uh, four books of poems and, and other uh, poetry work, uh, creative nonfiction. Uh, that it's appeared in many journals and anthologies. She's a member of the Bluegrass Writers Studio at Eastern Kentucky University and past president of the Kentucky State Poetry Society. Um, we'll talk about her academic life and her writing life and her current project uh, that she's involved in. Libby, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. It's a great pleasure to talk with you, Bill. So writing has been your life. When can you remember it wasn't your life? Whoa. Well, it does go way back. Uh, family story, I was not yet two and was sent to my room, punished for doing whatever, crying. My mother shut the door. After a while, she realized the crying had stopped. She went to see what I was up to. And I had in my room an, an apple crate that said Rome Beauty Apples. And I had printed on my chalkboard, Rome Beauty Apples, not yet two. <laughs> this is the legend, at least. And I, I think <laughs> I have a maybe a kind of memory of that. But uh, and of course, that was told to me as, you know, early prowess as a writer. So I had uh, um, parents who, you know, were word people, particularly my mother. So I really think I was always swimming in words. Now, having uh, parents as word people, that's such a, a fascinating way to describe uh, um, a mother and father. Uh, so did they have books in the house? Did oh, yeah. they subscribe to magazines and newspapers? Tell me about how they were word people. 
Right. Well, my mother was a writer. She was a journalist. Um, she edited at, at age 17 as a senior at Louisiana State University. She edited the Reveille, the university newspaper, and she went on to do other writing as a journalist and a social caseworker and uh, was a storyteller, you know, always a reader, loved word games. And of course, growing up as I did in uh, the 40s and 50s. Um, she was became a stay-at-home mom, much to my great good fortune, uh, because I had the benefit of her imagination and wit and literacy. My father's field was also social work, and he was the raconteur. He was the storyteller. So um, that tradition persisted for all of his 91-year life. So I do feel fortunate um, in being surrounded by books, uh, weekly trips to the public library in Baton Rouge, and, you know, got to, uh, I have vivid memories of the children's room there and the marble steps that went down, and you could check out seven books, and of course, I would have read them all by the next day and then didn't go back for a week, which, but we always had books and uh, always uh, uh, connections with people through language as well family, friends, you know, people talking, which is oh. such an important thing for a writer to hear language as well as see it on the page, as you well know. Other than writing uh, in your room on, on the apple cart, um, <laughs> what uh, did, did you begin to write uh, at an early age? Well, I think I did. I think, uh, you know, some early poems, age nine or so, that always got a lot of praise for my writing. Um, and then in, by middle school, junior high and so on, I was writing pretty steadily and getting recognized for it. And I did edit my high school newspaper and then my college newspaper. So I had um, writing you know, followed in my mother's footsteps in a way. I was lucky at college. Uh, I went to Duke University and the novelist Reynolds Price uh, was in his first year as a professor there and decided to teach a creative writing class for first year students. And I was lucky to um, audition and get accepted into that class. I have an essay that I've written about uh, what I learned that year with Reynolds Price. It was crucial to my development as a writer. Um, so, you know, things feeding in, working as a professional writer after college. Uh, I, I got a job uh, with a pharmaceutical company writing in their market marketing uh, company. I knew nothing about medicine science, but they had found out that if you could write, you could learn enough that you could communicate with others. So writing has really been the cornerstone of my personal and professional life. A lot of people um, are fortunate enough, a lot of students um, uh, older now, but uh, still remember uh, our, our riddle Reynolds Price here was Wendell Berry, yeah. and they tell, and and other writers too that were uh, instructors, uh, professors at uh, the University of Kentucky, uh, among many schools uh, around the state. But um, I do know of of a couple of people who had Wendell in class um, and tell stories about to what kind of professor he was as a much younger man. Uh, what do you remember about? Uh, 
Uh, and if people do not know Reynolds Price, they need to uh, look at his work and, and how well-known he was and how prolific and, and, uh, and famous he was as a, as a novelist uh, early on in the, uh, uh, in the last century. Uh, tell us what you remember about him being uh, as a professor in class. Well, of course, we were all scared to death of him. You know, he was famous <laughs> even then. He had published a novel, and he must have been only in his mid-20s. You know, and here we were, 18 years old. So um, he was, um, he really had a passion for accuracy, for immersing yourself uh, and into your writing um, and, and understanding that you were looking through words for meaning. And I think of his later development through poetry, through his NPR career and so on, his work was with uh, the sort of spiritual side of writing. I think that was emerging uh, even then. He he called, um, he would challenge us uh, not to write what he called, so what stories. Those were stories that would be technically proficient, well-written, but so what, you know, nothing really mattered. Um, and he also was really attuned to the music of language, to uh, uh, to listening and building that into your writing. So exploring the moment, the present, but with a sense of the universal that surrounds the everyday was something that I really absorbed from him. It must have been uh, as much as it is uh, today, uh, um, a, a real uh, honor to to be admitted and, and to attend Duke University. Well, it was. It was. Um, again, I was I was fortunate. It was a leap for me, a uh, thousand miles from home in an age where your connection was handwritten letters and occasionally calling on the payphone in the lobby of the dorm. <laughs> Uh, so it was kind of scary for me, but um, I thrived there. I loved the environment among uh, readers, interesting folks. I was there in the 60s, so a lot of political activism, which was, you know, not had been my direct heritage. Um, so it was an eye-opening uh, experience. I've I've really been fortunate in the teachers that I've had through my life, both in school a marvelous high school teacher, whom I, English teacher, whom I studied with for four of six years in high school. She kept teaching different grades. And then in graduate school in New York, I also um, had marvelous, insightful faculty who really took my work seriously and helped me to spread my wings, but also pushed me you know, in terms of the depth um, and um, accuracy of language. Your uh, your trip from Louisiana to, to Duke was uh, quite a journey, but from from uh, North Carolina to uh, to Stony Brook was was equally as uh, a, a, a quite a long distance. Uh, why Stony Brook? And again, talk a little bit about uh, that graduate school experience where you uh, received uh, an MA, a master's, and a PhD. Is that correct? 
That's right. So the the main reason I was there was I'd gotten married. My husband was a nuclear chemist. He wanted to, he was going on in grad school uh, in chemistry and had several schools that were had very fine programs in that field. And so I looked around. I thought, um, you know, I had worked as a year after college as a technical writer for the pharmaceutical company, and that was enough to show me that I. I would prefer to study rhetoric rather than produce it. Uh, and I loved, uh, I, I in that year that I worked as a technical writer, I spent my lunch breaks reading novels, uh, you know, uh, so I knew I needed to do, if I wanted to live a full life, I needed to return to what I really loved. So I wanted to go on in English. I thought a master's degree sounded pretty good. Uh, so I looked for programs and uh, one of the schools Roger got into with Stony Brook, the English department there was was new, and um, you know I applied to it too, and went out and talked with them, and you know it was a good fit for us. So uh, it turned out to be uh, uh, a terrific experience for me because the quality of the faculty was very high. I did feel like a real fish out of water, though, because I had actually been a history major at Duke. Uh, I had done the creative writing, but I didn't have the depth of study in literature that you needed for a degree in English. And seemed like my fellow and sister classmates had read everything that had ever been written. And I was uh, I, I, I was not there yet. But, you know, as I look back, I think it was a kind of advantage because I was thrilled by what I was discovering in literature. And uh, some of them, it was, a, oh, yeah, you know, been there, done that. And for me, it was doors opening constantly. Mm -hmm. so that joy of that first year uh, getting my master's and beginning to work as a tutor in a residence hall, so getting some early connection with student writers and seeing the joy of helping them learn to read and write. Um, those two things coming together made me realize that I wanted to go on for a PhD if I wanted to keep on in the academy as a scholar, a writer, and a teacher. So that was that journey. Did you always um, have in mind the, the great American novel that you were going uh -huh. to produce? Maybe the great American short story. You know, back when I was start when I was writing, the field of creative nonfiction did not exist. So you wrote stories or you wrote poems. And I wrote stories. And so my fiction was really heavily infused uh, with my life experience. But you know, we presented it as fiction. Um, today I much enjoy the genre of creative nonfiction because I do seem in my writing to have a real drive to to understand and figure things out. And so working with what is rather than just being able to change it um, has has been an important motive for me in my writing, whether it's in, it takes the form of poetry or prose. My uh, MFA is in creative nonfiction from Spalding. Um, how do you define creative nonfiction? I've been asked that uh, when I was attending <laughs> school there uh, as a, uh, by the way, as a, a, an adult and much older student um, just a few years ago. Um, how do you define creative nonfiction? 
Um, well, as you know, there have been whole journal issues dedicated to that question, but you could say it's truth that fudges a little bit. Um, you know, I do think that the motive there is essential truth in what you're writing. Um, but there is the freedom to make small changes, uh, to invent detail that could be accurate, even if it wasn't exactly. So there's permission in it. That's the creative part. But the nonfiction drive means that when we read work presented as creative nonfiction, we need to trust that the main um, pulse of it is rooted in reality. Um, and I think that's an important thing. We we know in the cases where we find out that something presented as memoir has actually been invented, we feel completely betrayed, even though there may have been a lot of truth in that invention. But we it's about trusting um, the author here. You need basic trust in understanding nonfiction, but then there definitely is some freedom in uh, how you tell your story. Exactly. And and I would agree with, with uh, all of those things that you said. So you were in Stony Brook and you, you finished your PhD. Um, and the next thing we know that, uh, that there's a uh, whether you went directly to Kentucky uh, to Berea, uh, we'll find out. Uh, let's let's hear about your next step in your life. Yeah. Well, again, uh, my husband, meanwhile, was understanding that his drive with science, uh, uh, his close relationship in love of, was moving more toward the philosophical rather than the experimental side. So he became interested in the field of history and philosophy of science and wanted to move from his work in chemistry to study that. That took him to the University of Chicago, which had a program uh, in the um, history and foundation of science. So uh, I moved again uh, without having finished my dissertation, which then took me about 10 years finally to finish. Um, but uh, again, uh, my I think my life has been a series both of choices and also accident that have turned out to present challenges, but also blessings because the long journey to finish that dissertation um, happened when I left and, you know, sort of lost my immediate contact with mentors and so on, had some struggles with the dissertation, had to get a job because his scholarship got us through the first year, but somebody had to earn some money and I was the more likely candidate. So things took a long time. But in me meanwhile, I got to live in Chicago and work at a marvelous art school, Columbia College, which has terrific programs in creative work of all sorts, writing, um, television, radio, dance, music, humanities, um, photography. That's where my journey with photography got started. Uh, and of course, being a part of the scene, the cultural scene at the universities there in the city, I, I learned a great deal and uh, did begin teaching part-time. My dissertation, I believe, is richer 
because of my life experience and also because of scholarship that was published during the time that I was working on it. Uh, and uh, the fact is, I did finish. I was able to finish. Uh, and so that stepping stone was accomplished. What was it about, and again, uh, your, uh, I'm talking with Libby Falk-Jones, uh, who has a, a resume and a, a vita at uh, LibbyFalkJones.com, and you can see some of her photographs there. What was it, uh, Libby, about uh, photography uh, after you were out of your your uh, writing discipline, not, not out of it, but uh, you finished, uh, you were working on your PhD, that um, made you pick up the camera for the first time? What, what was it that uh, enticed you about that? Wow, that's a great question because I, I'm actually currently working on a collection of poems and photographs where the relationship is not narrative, um, but they're both ways of telling stories, of seeing the world. Uh, at, uh, at, at Columbia, I was really exposed to great black and white photographers. It was an area I didn't know much of, and I was immediately struck by the aesthetics of the image. An image, of course, is key to writers as well. And, you know, here were people who were working directly with image, and the work was in black and white darkroom photography. So I was able to discover the magic of the darkroom and young people today. I mean, I do Photoshop today uh, and edit with RAW and all that. And I'm happy that I can do it in my com in my house because I don't have access to a wet darkroom. But in those days, uh, in the 60s uh, and early 70s, there was such power in working with your images in that darkroom. Do do you know a dark have you been in a a wet dark room oh yes experience with that well i mean it's been some time ago i mean it was yeah. uh, quite quite a long time ago uh -huh. well it is definitely what chick sent mahai would call a flow experience i mean time yeah dissolve but the magic of you know moving from what your eye could see what you could compose and realize on film of course mm -hmm. and then developing the film and working to print it and then learning to use the components of developing to make your image you don't take a photograph you make a photograph it was the first art where i had full control from my vision my perception to mm -hmm. realized piece of art and that was thrilling to me too this is you know back then if your writing was published, you handed it over to somebody else and they figured out how it was going to look mm. on the page. So I think that was a large part of my interest. And uh, I do feel fueled in both ways. I'm a very visual person. Um, so uh, being a photographer as well as a writer have helped me to learn to really use my eyes, my perceptions and my ear, of course, too. Was there uh, ever a time that you struggled with um, each of those disciplines competing with the other, that it was uh, a, a day when you wanted to, to go out and photograph, but you knew that if you didn't sit down and, and, and write uh, uh, 800 words, uh, you were going to be behind on your, on your short story or your essay or whatever you were working on? 
Sure, you you speak as one who knows, right? Sure, there there are always tensions and times when we need to make choices, but I feel really fortunate that I've been able to make my living, uh, realize my calling in a way that has openings for all sorts of uh, creative uh, experiences. And what you learn as both a writer and photographer is you, you don't always need a lot of time and the world's most interesting place to be in. I think we all learned during the pandemic, especially how much power there is in where we are. In fact, one of one of my uh, models heroes as a writer and photographer is brother Paul Quinnen, um, mm. who is a brother at the Abbey of Gethsemane. He studied with Thomas Merton, who was also oh. a photographer and writer. Mm -hmm. Very influenced by Merton's photographs, um, you know, and his journey as both a, a writer, a seeker, and mm -hmm. a photographer. But but Brother Paul, uh, you know, both of these men really photographed in an environment. <laughs> they they had a fairly limited field, you know. Yeah. They were living right there in uh, uh, at the Abbey mm -hmm. of. But it's all about the light and how you see things. Um, and so that is that is something that I have learned. I in my landscape photography, I do love going into landscapes and I'm attracted to certain types of landscapes, sort of bearscapes. I love the I love the ice. I love the sky. I love stuff that's cold and hard to be with, uh, the spareness of it. But um, uh, and I have been lucky to be able to be in those environments and it's thrilling mm. to do photography there, but it's also pretty thrilling to really look at the veins on a leaf when the light is hitting it a certain way and to see what you can see there and how that can spur your imagination. Well, there's a lot to it. Uh, your, your writing, uh, your, uh, poetry, uh, your photography, all of those things we'll uh, we'll talk about, and and what led you to your latest project? Uh, we'll uh, hear from our good friends down at Spalding University, and then come back and talk about uh, women writing over sixty. Right. Uh, right after this word from Spalding University. At Spalding University's low residency MFA program, creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Libby Falk Jones is our guest today on the podcast, and and uh, one of the the um, uh, the, the new uh, explorations uh, she has uh, ventured into. Uh, after well, let's just uh, be sure that we give proper due to uh, Berea College. You uh, taught there for how many years? Yes, twenty nine. Uh, I twenty nine years at Berea. Wow. I came to Berea in 1988 um, and really found my intellectual and spiritual and creative home there. I'm very 
grateful for the many opportunities that Berea College gave me to develop, to to um, to serve and to develop um, in a variety of ways. And you did what at Berea? Well, I came as the director of the Center for Effective Communication, which brought together work in speaking, writing, reading, and listening, and provided support for students, faculty, and staff in helping everybody uh, grow their abilities in those key communication areas. And that work led me into uh, teaching classes, also working with individual students, uh, um, beginning faculty development programs that persisted over many years where I had a chance to work with colleagues across the curriculum who are also readers and writers and teachers and the thrill of the intellectual uh, development that comes from those kinds of connections, that, that breadth of thinking um, and learning was really crucial uh, to me. And then uh, beginning to work uh, in the last uh, 20 years or so, focusing my own work with creative writing was growing um, and working, beginning to teach more in that area and then develop into the areas of contemplative writing and photography, um, book arts, et cetera. Uh, so my work for the last 15 years at Berea was centered much more on uh, teaching and writing creatively. Did you find, um, uh, is Berea still, um, don't, don't want to be critical, and I should know this from just looking at their website, are they still teaching in that area of the combination of of um, the disciplines that you you spoke about and, and that you were heading up when you first came there? Yes, there is there is a lot of continuing excellent work to Good. connect people across disciplines and uh, within fields and to encourage experimentation uh, in teaching and learning. So Good. I mm -hmm. think that's all right. That's a cornerstone of, of Berea as I have known it. And uh, I'm, I still work with several faculty and uh, groups mm -hmm. there and so on. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I that that uh, work is definitely um, continuing in a lot of exciting ways. Mm -hmm. So the uh, the project that you have uh, begun and worked on for the last few years, um, tell us about that. Uh, what what's it called, and why did you feel it was necessary to to begin again with uh, yet uh, an, another project uh, after right. you've done so much all your life. Well, writers are always beginning again, right? So uh, that, uh, you know, constant learning and engagement to me is the key to a successful life, regardless of your of your age. But uh, the project indirectly did have its roots in Berea, because as I moved over into working full time, teaching writing, doing my own writing and mm -hmm. working with other writers, um, I began to see the power of community connections for writers. I think writers have 
an obligation to share their joy, their understanding of the importance of writing with the wider world. And uh, I also think they learn from doing that. So I always involved my writing students in different community projects, um, working with folks not in the academy, but who could benefit from uh, engaging sure. uh, work with language. I really deeply believe that we are all writers. We may not see ourselves that way. And one of the goals of the writing teacher is to help everybody see themselves as a person who has language and can make things with language that are valuable to oneself and, and to others. So um, the community projects began to connect me with people in the local community. And I saw what an interest there was in work with writing. Um, and then having the kind of support, encouragement to, to let writing happen, which often is not so much taking a class, but simply having the space and the opportunity to write and then to connect with other writers. Yeah. So, um, I began opening my home uh, about once a month for a kind of creative retreat, not a workshop or class. Mm -hmm where people, students, uh, people from the community could come um, for three hours and just spread out. I happen to have a big house. My children are grown and gone, uh, have a yard. You know, there was plenty of space. And we worked in silence because I had learned through my own practice and study of contemplative work how important it is to try to shut the noise for a period and see what will happen inside your, your head and heart. Mm -hmm. And you don't have all the busyness and interruption. So um, after I retired in 2017, uh, I continued those, uh, those creative opportunities, offering those and students did come. Um, but since I wasn't teaching regularly, you know, I didn't have as many students, sure. but I had more community people and they kept mm -hmm. It turned out to be a number of older women who really were relishing that opportunity. So I think in in my mind, I, I, I was always interested in, well, what would happen if mm -hmm. there was some real work to support older women? I'm aware, as I know you are, that uh, older women uh, are typically sidelined, rendered invisible. Um, uh, you know, as the as men age, they tend to grow in power and stature, but as women age, they they lose uh, some of their currency, should we say. And uh, I deeply believe, of course, that humans have value at all. Mm -hmm. And that women in particular uh, have the wisdom. And as we get older, we have much greater freedom in mm -hmm. living our lives and being creative people. So that was kind of in my mind and fueled then by a couple of things. Uh, one was uh, meeting up in 2019 with Dr. Julian Unsell, who was a faculty member at Evergreen State College in Washington State. She has Kentucky roots, uh, grew up um, in Lexington, and has family now in Esto County. And that mm -hmm. year, 
had retired and moved back here and a mutual writer friend introduced us and we got together to talk. Um, Jules's field was primarily women's history. Uh, but of course, she was also writing and, uh, you know, teaching and so had an interest in the growth of others. And uh, she ended up at a retreat at my home where the five or six people at, who were there were all older women. And our writing that we produced in that session was so good. This mm. December 2019, and I said, you know, the time has come to move forward with something. So I was aware that Kentucky Foundation for Women could support projects like this. Mm -hmm. So uh, Jules, uh, we teamed up. We wrote a grant application in February of 2020 um, and submitted it for a program to start in September of 2020. Well, you remember what happened in March of 2020. Sure. So the pandemic hit. And when we found out in June that we had gotten funding for the project, mm -hmm. which we had planned as an in-person project rooted in Madison and Estill counties. We were at Kentucky Foundation for Women asked if we, you know, they said, if you can't do your program because of the pandemic, just feel free to say no. But of course, we didn't want to say no. We were excited. We had already a lot of interest in people who wanted to participate. So we moved the program online and started it in September of 2020. And uh, uh, it presented some challenges. But one of the benefits is for a lot of the women who are in our program, uh, many of them are living alone and were pretty isolated and learning the technology and mm -hmm. being connect during that pandemic time was a great boon um, to us as humans, as well as writers and artists. Have you been pleased with the outcome? Absolutely. So I did have to bring and show... Mm -hmm. First collection, uh, our grant from KFW was largely to support the publication of the anthology so that we didn't have to spend a lot of our time trying to find a publisher. Mm -hmm. Our second volume, which came out last fall, mm -hmm. um, both of these coming of age, writing and art by Kentucky women over 60. Um, our first program had 32 women participating. Our second round had 60. Uh, mm -hmm. We didn't plan for it to be that large, yeah. but the quality of the applicants and their interest was so great that we, we didn't want to say no. So it has been a great joy, um, the kind of the best kind of teaching in many ways with, with motivated uh, folks who are just doing amazing things. And we feel like we are making a difference in helping people to understand the breadth of interests and abilities that Kentucky women have, all women, of course, but especially Kentucky mm -hmm. And um, so it has been a mm -hmm. great joy to work with this program over the past four years. So uh, four years in and uh, not that anyone is going to pronounce it uh, running out of material. You just wouldn't do that in a in a state uh, uh, like this. Uh, what what are the next steps for uh, women over 60 and the writing project that you began? 
Well, we keep reaching out to get the work in front of people and heard. Um, and uh, a number of people in the program are working on major projects of their own. Several have already published books of their own, and several have interesting work in progress. So we're going to continue over the next uh, year to work with our current members to um uh, people are meeting in small groups, and then we also do a weekly open mic where folks can bring things and read and get responses. So we'll continue working with this group, and then we do have in mind uh, a year from now um, starting and applying for another grant and starting a new round. Well, that, that's exciting to, to look forward to, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. We, are, we are lucky in our state to have so many opportunities for nurturing creative work and connecting creative people, of which this is certainly one. Yes, it is. Uh, Libby Falk-Jones uh, has been speaking with us uh, on Think Humanities for uh, the past few minutes about her life and about the life that she's instilling in others through her a project called uh, Women Writing Over 60. Um, and the second publication is out now. Now, uh, you're you're working on a third. Is Am I correct about that? Uh, no. Well, different uh, members are working on publications. Oh, okay. uh, They're individual ones. No, the next anthology would come out of a third round of the program. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, yes, but we are. Uh, one thing I've especially enjoyed is that in both programs, uh, in our monthly workshops, um, we invite people to explore particular elements of writing, and mm -hmm. we always do some creative writing. And then we gather bits of that creative writing into collaborative pieces. Mm -hmm. And been able to include some of those in each of the collections. So in addition to pieces by individual writers, poems, stories, nonfiction, drama, mm -hmm. um, and visual art, we've been able to include some of these compilations, which have the voices of many people, and uh, I think are a testament to the value of community um, in supporting creative work. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, hearing about the project and uh, about your life, and we wish you the best. And uh, hopefully at some point in time, it won't be in Zoom, but we'll see each other in person again as we have before. I would love that, Bill. Thank you so much for this opportunity and for all that you and the Kentucky Humanities Council are doing to support such important work in our state and beyond. Thank you. As I mentioned at the beginning of today's conversation, after seven years and over 300 podcasts, we've made the decision that the Think Humanities podcast has had a good run, but it's time to put it on the shelf. There are many people to thank. Our underwriter, longtime friends at the Spalding University Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, Technical expertise from Michael Breeding and Neil Kesterson. Editing, production, and content support from Zoe Kaler and Marianne Stess at Kentucky Humanities. We are so grateful for all of the listeners and guests. Thank you for lending your 
time and your voices to help us promote the humanities in Kentucky. You said important things, and you made us think. Previous episodes of Think Humanities are not going away. They're available on our website at kyhumanities.org and through Apple Podcasts and Spotify, where you can listen to them at any time. Thank you for listening to Think Humanities, and for a final time, I'm Bill Goodman. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 52 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud.